0: This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queen's College.
1: I'm Leslie Hinkson from Georgetown University.
0: And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. So we've uh, set up a webpage. It's uh, theannexpodcast.com. Don't forget the the. And we have a new Twitter account, at Soch Annex. So you can uh, look us up. It's our second episode, guys. Feeling good?
2: Yeah, not bad.
0: <laughs> it's like less fanfare than we might expect.
2: Well, I I've listened to the first episode so I can't be that
0: enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah. Fair, fair enough. Anyway, yeah, who wants to get the ball rolling? Uh so I've got a
2: banter item, the Internet Movie Database, which, you know, is a website obviously, but it's also a data set. In fact, it started out as a data set. I think it started out back in like the Usenet days, oh. uh back before the web became a big deal. Anyway, um, it's a data set. I've worked on it. I've had a fair number of students who've worked on it. And in order to do that, you need to download the raw data files. But those are going away. Um, Yep, IMDB put up a note that they're going to be migrating the project from their old FTP sites to an Amazon S3 site, which isn't that big of a deal. I mean, S3 is a huge pain in the butt to use, but you're talking an hour worth of work, you know, and talking to your IT guy, Um, but then you're done. But the real problem is that they're changing the data set. And in some ways, this is good. The data format is going to be much simpler. Uh, IMDB used to be a huge pain to use. I had an undergraduate who took an entire quarter to understand it. But the real problem is that they're dropping a lot of the variables. It's not going to have box office. It's not going to have budget. It's not going to have release dates. It's not going to have any of that. So... (laughs)
0: Is this a pretext for the pro version where you're going to have to pay extra for the extra data or what's going on?
2: Well, I don't think so because the pro data, the pro version, this stuff is still on the website. Um, And the, the pro version variables were never in the text data version. The pro version included stuff like projects and development and what talent agency represents whom and that sort of thing. And that was never either on the website or the plain website or the, um, the text version. I, my suspicion is that they were getting a lot of queries from other websites that were kind of piping the data to their websites. And it was like a, a bandwidth issue. And so they want to switch it to S3 so that they can charge you for downloading, which isn't a big deal for the end user. It's not like it's going to cost you. In fact, you, if you get the S3 set up, you can probably download it for free because there's like a free tier of like a gig or two a month. And the entire IMDb, well, the entire old IMDb, is about um, a gig. And the new version, which has a lot fewer variables, is probably, I don't know, 500 megabytes or something.
0: What does this practically mean for people who who use it? A lot of people use that data. It means
2: download it now while you still can. Um, I downloaded it a couple days ago so that I'd have a copy. But in the future, like, let's say that I want to replicate one of my papers uh, in a few years or, uh, you know, a grad student or somebody wants to replicate one of my papers. They're not going to be able to do it because all those variables that my papers are based on um don't exist anymore. I mean, if you want to get concrete about it, uh, my 2010 paper, those variables are basically still in there. Um, a few of the variable a few of the control variables are no longer going to be in there, but the most important variables are still in the Amazon S3 version. But my 2014 paper, uh, it's those those variables that are important to that paper, like all of them are gone.
1: So I get the rationale for the change in format. What's the explanation for getting rid of those other variables?
2: I don't know. And they don't it, they don't even really seem to have thought about it. They seem to have thought that here's a way to make it simpler and a way to change the hosting and things like that. But they are they have a really terse explanation for why they're dropping all those variables. They say something about them not being maintained, but I don't believe that because those are on the website. So
0: we are going to have um, to start squirreling it away. Oh, I just did. I had that problem, too. I think it was with the White House data when the when there was the transition from the Obama White House to the the Trump White House, just all of the budget data to just disappeared. And it's interesting, like it's a byproduct of how how lazy I'm getting Like, I'm not yeah. storing things. I just go to the Web now for everything I. I uh... Well,
2: well, that's a, that's actually like kind of the take home, right? So if you want to think of like, what's the take home to t- tell your grad students who don't care about IMDb, it's. Don't trust that it will be there on the cloud. Make a local
0: copy. Yeah, is it? That's that's one hundred percent the truth. Like, uh, and, and you know, I saw this Twitter. I saw this tweet uh, on Twitter. Uh, I guess that's the only place you would find tweets. But I saw I saw this tweet where, where somebody wrote like two thousand fifteen. I'm too lazy to go get the book from my shelf, so I download the illegal PDF. And 2017, I'm too lazy to find the PDF in my files, so I just keep on re-downloading it.
2: Oh, totally. Yeah. You know? But you can only do that if it still exists, and that's why you got to make a local mirror. And by the way, I checked. I was right. It's uh, 1.56 gigabytes, and that's the, G- the GZIP version. So if you were to unzip it, it would be a little bit bigger. But it's a 1.56 gigabyte download. If you have relatively good internet, it'll take you less than an hour to download the whole thing. Do it now because it goes away in November
0: public service announcement. I put it on the show page but that's a bit big, I think. It'll uh, eat up our eat up our stuff. Oh, the
2: the actual data set?
0: Yeah. That's <laughs> <Well, laughs> bad let's idea. put it
2: this way. I have a copy if, you know, you hear this after November and you need a copy, email me. All right,
0: Leslie, what's going on with you?
1: What's going on with me? Um, I don't want to be the one to get political here. Right. But uh Ta-Nehisi Coates um, had a piece, his most recent piece that just came out in the Atlantic. With the title "The First White President," and oh, I saw this. Have you seen it? And basically, I
0: didn't go through it. Go, it's going. Go. Cool. So it's about I'm Andrew sorry. Jackson. Yeah, well, no,
1: he's talking yeah. about Trump actually. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah.
0: and what's he saying?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And he and I, uh, in a nutshell, he's making the claim that you know this election was all about whiteness, and I was just wondering if you all had seen it and what you thought.
0: I saw the title. It's on my, like, two read list. Can you get, just give a, give us a rundown of, like, the main, the main ideas? Uh,
1: so the big take-home is that this, is, this was basically a referendum on whiteness, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the ways in which um, I think he tries to make the argument that it was about that is there seem to be people who were voting against their interests, right? So, um, you know, number one, white women – Number two, um, the white working class themselves, and although this wouldn't be the first time that the white working class had, you know, supposedly voted voted against their own interests. And then also, you know, the claim that um, this was really actually about populism, this really was about people feeling like they'd been left out of the election process and that the economy had left them behind to that code says well you know why then why didn't black people vote for trump right but they did
2: they did did relative to the baseline so this is one of the weird things is that trump's vote was higher among uh latinos and blacks than romney's was really yeah
0: what's the explanation of that
2: and his um his vote was lower among college educated whites than so he, Trump, like, radically out, overperformed among non-college educated whites. That's his core demographic. Uh, but he underperformed among college educated whites. He got a lot fewer college educated whites than did um, Romney. But he got slightly fewer uh, blacks and Latinos than Romney did.
0: Still, though, I mean, I I, you, I think that race was, I don't know, I don't think it was the only issue at play. And I wouldn't reduce uh, all like everything to race, but I, I I agree with the idea that race was a central issue in this debate, like whiteness versus non whiteness. I think it mobilized people who wouldn't have voted for him. I think a lot of what I heard seemed to, you know, seemed to have echoes of, of, of race politics. So I, I I think it's I think it's uh, uh, that I would agree with it in part.
2: Well, I, I think that makes intuitive sense. And I was surprised when I saw that, um, you know, Trump out overperformed Romney among blacks and Latinos. I mean, we're talking about a few percentage points. But, you know,
0: so is that, it's like random noise, though, right? Well,
2: I mean, it's a super that... large N. So but even if it was statistically insignificant, right, you would expect it, it should be a one tailed hypothesis or something like that, right? You would expect that Trump should be lower among uh non-white groups and the fact that he was you know even if we say well it's not actually higher it's equal to or higher you know and we're saying realistically it was a couple points higher right.
0: um
2: it, it's surprising because romney didn't run that way
0: yeah, but also also uh romney was up against obama who probably really mobilized the black vote for the democrats like yeah. did were they performing better relative well it's hard because you can't go back that far but was Did Trump perform better than maybe Bush did?
2: Well, you go back far enough and you run into compositional uh, yeah. problems because the Republican share of the white vote has been having a secular trend upwards.
0: Right. So, I hear. So-
2: I mean, which you can tell because otherwise the Republicans would have. Well, if that wasn't the case, the, the elections wouldn't have been competitive. Right. I mean, it's right. still right. roughly a 50 50 country. But the share the, of the country that's uh, non-Hispanic white is declining, and right. so you, you almost have to have those kind of marginal Simpson's paradox type shifts to balance it out.
0: Right. Leslie,
1: yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I just threw it out there because you know while you know as you as you were saying it kind it kind of makes intuitive sense. Um, I don't know. I just wish you 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 you'd both read the article because I'm having. I'm having difficulty buying his argument. The only
2: part I read was the bit about the eldritch energies that, you know, look like uh, something out of a uh, fantasy novel. (laughs) Like I saw saw that paragraph pulled out. uh, (laughs) I didn't read the whole article, but I I don't know. I mean, I I think it would be analytically useful to distinguish um, primary voters from general voters, because there were a lot of general voters who didn't vote for him in the primary, but kind of rallied to the party.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: you know, and so I think that's a different process that you have to distinguish between somebody who's like, you know, came out, maybe they were not even registered Republican, but they're in an open primary state and they came out and voted for Trump in the primary. That's a very different kind of person than somebody who's like, well, I don't like him. I supported Cruz or whatever. And, um, you know, but I got to hold my nose and vote for him because otherwise I'm worried that my church will lose its tax status or something. And you know, you know, or you know, I I've got to hold my nose and vote for him because of the Supreme Court. That's not me. I voted against him in both the primary and the general. But
0: um, you know, I, I I see those as different processes. I think there were a few things at play all at once, and I, I will say race was definitely put at the front of this election. Like this was the most obvious. uh, election that was set up as some type of indirect referendum on multiculturalism that I've ever sat through like I compare that to the Obama versus McCain uh, election where I think McCain actively tried to tamp down overt talk about you know Obama being an other
2: oh not only that but uh, McCain wouldn't let his um, his campaign use the Reverend Wright
0: issue yeah this yeah. thing, things like that. So this one, I mean, I was surprised that it worked. But I think there. are, I, I, I was thinking about the election this morning because uh, uh, it's Tuesday, September twelfth, and Hillary Clinton was making the rounds on my morning drive <laughs> with her <laughs> new book about how
2: it's everybody else's fault. It's everybody else's <laughs> yeah. fault. Yeah, yeah. And well, that
0: was. At least, I didn't read Hillary's book, but that's the thing. That's the main headlines and yeah. I, and. And I think there were a few other factors in Hillary's loss. Like, number one, there was the question of uh, her being a Clinton after a Bush got elected after a Bush and this whole issue of dynasties. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that there are a lot of people, I, I think there were a lot of working class voters who, the wife of a former president being elected right after the son of a former president was elected and thinking that the whole system is corrupt and there's a circulation of elites and i know people who are trump supporters who i believe genuinely wanted to blow up the system i think they didn't know what they were getting into but they wanted to break that
2: well there's so many ironies to this right and that one of the part of the appeal of people voting for trump speculatively, is, um, you know, to avoid this kind of political dynasty thing. But he, his ha- half his cabinet, the only ones that he haven't fired, are family members no. or in-laws, you know. Uh, so you have that kind of dynastic type thing that people worried about with uh, the Clinton restoration. And then likewise, um, you know, the biggest issue with um, Clinton was, you know, ethics and the appearance of venality and that sort of thing. But he's, you know totally crooked and has all sorts of conflicts of interest. Oh,
1: definitely. I mean, I I I
2: think think
1: that I think, though, part of her argument is right. I mean, I actually think if the Comey thing hadn't happened, I think she would have won. But Mm -hmm. I don't think that she would have won with as great of a margin as she expected
2: to. Well, the Um, Comey thing wouldn't have happened if she didn't have a uh, nonprofit that worked as a slush fund and then deleted emails to hide it.
1: Well, you, I mean,
2: didn't a, Trump have
1: the same thing, but
2: I, I, yeah, I said that thirty seconds ago,
1: yeah, yeah so yeah, I mean yeah. I, so I think she would have won just not not this not with the same margin, but I mean, but it was, I think, a flawed campaign from the beginning. I mean, you know, if you're going to insist on having your campaign headquarters in Brooklyn, right, then it should damn well be in Bensonhurst, okay, all right. You know, <laughs> Right? Like
2: I I, I I don't I, I, I'm not aware of these New York parochialisms.
1: The Brooklyn brand, right? As uh-huh. sort of like that's how I reach out to the hipsters, right? Uh-huh. But you you based yourself in you know, in in Bensonhurst or you know, or wherever that's ha- that has had this white ethnic working class identity for a really long time, right? To show that like, yeah, I, can, I care about the concerns of people like you, too. And what I'm really worried about is that the Democrats are going to see this as a referendum on multiculturalism, which I think is ridiculous, um, and say, oh, we need to just talk about class. You know, it's possible to, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. You can talk about both things.
0: You know, Leslie, I think that's exactly what's going to happen out of this, or at least that's my sense of it, is that there are a lot of white Democrats who are at least going to be gun shy about uh, uh, race, multiculturalism, and immigration. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I'm not an expert on this type of stuff, but I've been listening
1: to them, Joe, and I think you're exactly right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I don't know, but there's there's a lot of things that were going on. There were a lot of mistakes. You know, some of them weren't in our hands. I think that it was very damaging for the New York Times to be saying that it was a ninety five percent chance that Hillary was going to win. I think that was decisive. But I read it was. An, What's that?
2: But it was. I mean, if you're taking the uh, polls at face value and you're well. just thinking in terms of sampling error and that sort of thing, it was, you know ninety five percent likely.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. So I, I remember a lot of people were uh, were cutting into those uh, those analytics professionals. I know 538 had Hillary at like a 70% Well, yeah, chance. he
2: basically hedged because it's like, well, you never know what's going to happen. And it turned out, in retrospect, that was the right thing to do. But if you were taking sampling error at, uh, you know, and I did this calculation in my stats class because whenever there's an election, I use it to teach sampling error. Mm-hmm. And I say, let's treat this as a one-tailed uh, hypothesis test. And, you know, I did the math, and it was like one out of 50,000 or something like that.
0: Even one out of 50,000 events occur. We should probably move on, though. Oh, yeah. Just one last
1: question. Since yeah. you're talking since you're talking about polling data, what do we know about the effect of polling on voter behavior?
0: Uh, I don't know anything about it. I'd be happy to bring someone on who can speak capably about it. Gabe, do you know anything about that? No, not really.
1: I'd right. love to know. I actually think it has an effect.
0: Well, if you're listening and you or someone you know uh, knows something about this, uh, drop us a line and uh, maybe we can talk. All right. Gabe, I uh, read your R rant. Oh. And (laughs) uh, I did. And you know what? You make a lot of good points. And I I didn't want to do two statistics uh, topics in a row. I don't want this to be like a, a methods blog. But then I saw this post on Org Theory. Uh, asking, should Stata just give up and die? Well,
2: that was so funny, because Fabio's like, I use Stata, I love Stata, but
0: it should die. And it, like, it,
2: it hasn't in your own office. So.
0: Yeah, I know. Well, I I wanted to make the argument that we should be purging Stata out of the curriculum. This is something <laughs> Purge, that...
2: Purge, like French Revolution style? Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> leave no leave no survivors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: no. Uh, okay, the so- Bain segment comes at the end.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I I have to say this is something that we have uh, dealt with a lot because we have a data analytics graduate program. And uh, there are a lot of problems with R. I want to just very quickly talk about your list because I think you're you're right in a lot of ways. Uh, R is a pain. But uh, on some stuff, I think there's a matter of taste thing. Like, for example, I was thinking about it. Well, like, why start a course talking about object types, right? Like mm-hmm. vectors, matrices. Which they all and do. I've, I've been I know, like half a w- dozen of them and they all do what? You, wa- you want to know something? I looked at my class notes and so do I. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I, I realized when I was looking at it. So my reasoning is that if you teach R, the first class that you're going to be doing is like installing the program explaining like the interface and the concepts of libraries and the basics of markdown and sometimes the students get a little antsy and you want them to be working with some numbers and this is like a simple this is like a simple lesson where you could teach them something simple and then get them to calculate things without doing a whole magilla you know what i mean
2: Uh, to me that feels like if driver's ed started by teaching kids how the
0: carburetor works (laughs)
2: Well, the car won't move without the carburetor, but, you know, it's more important to tell them here's the steering wheel.
0: Well, I the way I see it is showing them around, showing them libraries, getting them telling about our studio. That's like explaining the parts. And then uh, maybe, you know, you get them to drive a straight line and really like vectors and arrays and things are not very complicated concepts. And you can get the kids to create. I shouldn't say kids. You get the (laughs) the learners, the students (laughs) to create they can be simple objects. Yes, I know. Yeah. <laughs> you get them to create uh, an array and calculate a mean, and it's just a really simple way but to But what's just... wrong
2: with just saying let's open the empty cars data set and then, you know, 2 weeks later you teach them how to generate a, a matrix?
0: You could new. do that, too. It comes up sometimes because certain functions or operations will only work with certain data types. All right. So, listen, maybe I have the blinders on, but I do that, and i that's why I do it. The documentation, you're totally right. Documentation is, is bad for our – status documentation is amazing. I've gotten a whole education off of status manuals over my yeah. career. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, when I have students, I – expect that they will eventually be the quant experts at their jobs and usually when they go out and they come back they tell me they are and i want them to learn as i learn to work as i work and some of that involves like looking stuff up and just sort of piecing together what you're doing and i get i get hatred from my students at the beginning from this because i'm time will look it up look it up find out for yourself don't Mm -hmm. you know and uh, i think overall once that sigs in they they become more competent and more independent i don't want them relying on textbooks and i don't want them relying on me so you're calling me the helicopter stats professor a little bit yeah Yeah. i mean this is something and then with the output and saving sessions and stuff what i do is i get them to just do an analysis front to back within a markdown and you can change the options on the markdown to show output or not Mm -hmm. but i just channel everything from raw data fetching to the to the final analysis, everything through one markdown uh, one markdown uh, document. No,
2: that sounds now, good.
0: Yeah. I like it, and I think it's good for replicability, and I, it's what I think people should be doing. Now, on the question of whether it's time for the discipline to abandon Stata, this is something we talk about a lot, and uh, I am very much an advocate of uh, eliminating Stata from our grad program. First, like first of all, in our faculty, no one's arguing for Stata. We've all of the younger faculty have been trained in Stata, mm-hmm. but it's about R versus Python versus SAS for us, and that, it's just a, it's just a matter of jobs. Yeah, if you go on Glassdoor and you type in Stata, you're going to find R A jobs and nothing else.
2: Oh well, that makes sense, right? Because it's Stata has this weird uh, academic niche, and maybe in, like biostatistics or something, but the vast majority of uh, you know private sector data science is r or python
0: yeah and so it's my understanding SaaS is in some legacy industries here in new york mm-hmm.
2: yeah but SAS you might as well treat them COBOL.
0: yeah i know but like uh, there's some lock look people argue for it i'm not one of them so sure. i'm not going to do it but uh i think uh, i think in in the discipline as a whole we should be transitioning to r or python And I have a couple reasons. One, I think when you train your students in R, you raise the ceiling on students' ability. Like sky's the limit with R. There's like, there's nothing you can't do just about. When you start doing R and you train your students in R, a lot of stats gets demystified like i've heard people come in talking about their methodological innovations and how they're downloading these social media output and do and you realize they downloaded three packages (laughs) you know what i mean it's like but it doesn't sound good to be like yeah i downloaded this package from cran that does all that but we're not we're not statisticians in this discipline we're applied statisticians that's right And like, let's, so let's just, let's just be candid about where in the larger statistics field we're operating. It's we're we're users. We're downstream from the statisticians. And, uh, you know, I think when you train students like that, they'll just, they have a chance at becoming good data scientists, data analysts.
2: Well, I, I'm much more sympathetic to saying we should try Python. Um, Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I've never done a statistical analysis in Python. I've only used it for general purpose computing, but that that language makes a lot more sense to me than R does,
0: and so I heard it's user friendly. I don't use it. So oh, I it's much
2: see. more user friendly. I mean, for instance, a for loop is actually a for loop. It's not you know an apply, you know thingy, and it looks like a loop, yeah. and it, it makes very heavy use of white space, which makes it easy to read, mm. at a you know at a glance. It's it's a great language.
0: I use for loops. It's just it's a son of a gun. I can't yeah. get out of loops. I can't get out of loops. It's my native state. I think I agree with the idea that it's time for us to get rid of Stata. Like uh, it makes sense maybe if you are training students to become academics at other institutions. But if your students are heading out to the private sector or even government and you want to train top flight data analysts, I think. Let me give you a
2: hypothetical. Let's say that tomorrow some foundation bought out Stata and made the whole language open source uh uh-huh. or or kept it proprietary but somehow made it so that it was you know f- some freemium model where the free for- tier was really good would you still say that
0: if that opening of the software mm-hmm. created the huge universe of packages mm-hmm. that w- like that r has then yeah maybe i would mm-hmm. but it doesn't right and yeah. i know that there's like th- that's the thing uh it doesn't and uh so no, but that's why, and that's why people aren't using it. And it's just that's why there's a ceiling. You you have a ceiling when you're when you're strictly stata.
2: Well, it's not just that it's proprietary. I mean, the, there's also the fact that it's um, flat file, and also a yeah. uh, little subtler that it's interpreted code. Um, so it's good for surveys, but it's not good for any kind
0: of complicated data structure. It's it's wonderful for surveys. It's wonderful for a ton of stuff. Yeah, like I love stata, but. Anyhow. All right. So shall we move on? Sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, now it's time for what I'm reading. That's a uh, segment where we talk about things that we've been reading and researching. And uh, for uh, my what I'm reading segment, I want to talk about a reading list that I've been uh, looking at over the past couple weeks. It's for this mini conference that I'm going to be going to in a couple months. And the conference is about how to deal with all the job losses to automation that seem to be happening and and, and are probably a significant part of what's been hurting the U.S. middle class. Uh, over the past several decades, there's been uh, a lot of uh, jobs that have uh, become automated. Like an example, I, if you talk to the uh, the uh, older my older colleagues here at Queen's College, they they tell me that. Several decades ago, there was a typing pool. Have you heard about this? Did you have this at your school? It's basically you would draft up your article and then you'd send it down to a typing pool. Let's say 40 typists in the basement. And two days later, you would get a typewritten version of whatever it is you drafted out. Mm -hmm. Right. Or uh, now we work on PCs. Those jobs have disappeared. Right. We used to go to bank tellers. Now we have ATMs. Those jobs disappear et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Now, automation has always been something that we have to contend with, right? There's the, the you know, there's that old story about how the uh, the cloth spinners of Blackpool smashed the spinning jenny, hoping to, you know, stop the rise of the machines or, you know, all those horseshoe smiths that went out of business when the car came along. And the economy has always sort of created new jobs, to ultimately absorb the people who were displaced by technological change, but the big concern here is that machines are getting so good that the economy it doesn't seem to be creating jobs that replace those who are being displaced. You know, uh, there and and there there are certain more complicated or higher end tasks tasks that we would have associated with white collar jobs that are disappearing. Like for example, think of the accountants who are losing their jobs to TurboTax or the in, Corporation attorneys who are losing their jobs to Quicken. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we professors might be displaced by MOOCs one day, you know, if they ever figure out how to do it right.
2: Well, how much do you want to talk about MOOCs versus this in general? Because I feel like we could spend the entire time talking about MOOCs and why they haven't worked so far.
0: Ah, MOOCs are not working in the way that they are because people, students, I think students need mentors.
2: Oh, yeah. And... And Okay, so I guess what we we are going to talk about. We're that. just going to
0: do it. Yeah, You're not, not
2: going to stop me. So, uh, <laughs> so, so one of the ways I think about MOOCs is that if you look at the retention rates by different types of schools, mm-hmm. the retention rates for um, like schools like Princeton or for that matter, you know, basically any kind of selective private school, whether it's a research university or a uh, a good liberal arts school, the, they have retention rates of like 95% like their six-year completion rate is like 95% for undergrads. Right. Um, If you look at uh, moderately selective large state schools like UCLA, Uh um, the retention, the six-year completion rate is something like 60%, 70%. If you look at less selective um, uh, public schools like um, Uh CUNY, what's the retention rate there? What's the six-year completion rate Uh there, like 50%?
0: 40%. Yeah, something like that. We're not yeah. bad, but it's not through. The, it's not, not comparable to yeah. Harvard or something
2: like yeah. that. Yeah, and then if you look at um, two-year colleges, the three-year completion rate for a two-year degree is, like, absurdly low. It's, like, 12%. Right. Right. So, um, and what, what I see in common there is that, you know, when I was at Princeton, when we were all at Princeton, you remember dealing with house masters. Like, you guys remember that Miguel— Centeno was a housemaster, and I daughter.
1: was an assistant
2: master. Oh, oh that's wow. right! Okay. Oh, that's right! So you're the expert. Yeah, I totally <laughs> forgot about that. That's right. The one year you were in Butler, uh, so <laughs>
0: living deluxe.
2: <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So, like a
0: Princeton undergrad, you lucky ducky. Yeah, Go on, sorry, right. Gabe. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, you were like uh, steps away from the first campus center. Right. <laughs> anyway, so um, the. You know, so if a student at Princeton has trouble, the housemaster kind of tracks them down and says, "You know, what's what's going wrong? Can we help? You know, can we arrange something?" Might school, I, like, might yeah, I
1: interject a second? It's go actually the assistant master who <laughs> does it, right? Okay. Right? You know, the master gets to take all the credit for making
0: order.
2: Okay, so there you go. So right, so at a at a school like Princeton. If a student screws up, they're in the capable hands of Leslie, who goes yeah. and tracks them down, meets with their TA, meets with their professor, and makes sure that there's a way for them to get back on track. Right. At a school like UCLA, you just you just have a uh, you just have a fail that term, or you just have a uh, you know a, a, an incomplete. And I have students who like they don't show up for the final, and I don't know why. You know, right. and then on top of that, like at schools like Princeton, you have a shopping period, mm-hmm. whereas at schools like UCLA, and I'd imagine also Queens, uh, there's a wait list and you have yeah. students begging you for the little permission code to get in. I am not. I would imagine Georgetown's yeah. more like uh, Princeton, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So basically the more labor intensive you make the school, right, the more you have, there's a high ratio of faculty to students which implies that it's easy to get classes. Um, and there's a lot of handholding, the more they graduate. Whereas, um, you know, even if you have something where, you know, there's real flesh and blood people in a real, you know, and in theory, they're supposed to come to class. Um, you end up seeing people not graduate as much, right? So you have Princeton, which is a total handholding, we will not let you fa- It's impossible to get in. But once you get in, we will not let you fail type mm-hmm. of institution. Versus a school like UCLA, where it's somewhat feasible to get in, but you're kind of on your own. You know, you can seek out help, but nobody's going to come knocking on your door, checking up on you. Um, You know, and you see that there's like a 30 percent gap, 30 percentage point gap in the six year completion rate. And I don't think it's all that Princeton students have an SAT score that's 200 points higher than UCLA or whatever. It's not big enough to explain that.
0: There's a bunch of things going. So this isn't about automation, but I really like this topic because it's yeah. something that I care about. Um, you know, now that I've come here, I, I my perspective on why kids flunk out of these schools has changed a lot. If if there was one thing that I think does damage to uh, CUNY students and hurts our graduation rate, it's the uh, full-time study requirement from the Pell Grants. Hmm. Because w- what's happening is these kids come in, they can barely afford this school as is. And they're very reliant on the Pell Grant. They don't have parental aid. Mm-hmm. They, some of them have to support their own families while they go to school. Their families are relying on them. And what you end up happening is you have a lot of students who go to school full time and work quite long hours. And they're just overstretched and they can't go through at their pace. Uh, there's, I, I feel like the students here are overstretched. They got the brains, and I don't know if more faculty would do anything to help them, as opposed to either just making college free or relaxing the Pell restrictions.
2: Well, I think those things interact, right? In right. that, you know, so sometimes the students can't get the course load they need. Like, mm-hmm. let's say that there's a student who works part time. Uh, or they commute a very far distance. So they're effectively, their schedule is limited. So they can only take classes Tuesday, Thursday mornings. Mm -hmm. And then all the classes that are on Tuesday, Thursday mornings fill up. Like in theory, they could do it if they could find a class, uh, a block of six hours of back-to-back-to-back on Tuesday, Thursday mornings or something like that. But they can't do that because even if there are classes at those times, they're full and they can't get into them. Then they don't meet their uh, minimum unit requirement for financial aid. And then they mm-hmm. end up having money problems. So I, I, I see these
0: problems as related. Leslie, what do you, what do you got to see on this?
1: Uh, you know, I'm thinking about my own institution. You know, I have, I mean, there's definitely quite a bit of handholding
0: mm-hmm.
1: here, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, at the departmental level, it usually falls though to like one or two faculty members to do it, mm-hmm. um, which gets really tough. Number one, number two, um, you know, it's a private school, and it's incredibly expensive.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think the institution tries to be as generous as it can be. Mm-hmm. But I have students who work like incredibly long hours. At least when I compare the number of hours that they work compared to the undergrads at at Princeton, or mm-hmm. you know, the undergrads. You know, my daughter just started at Williams. The undergrads there, mm-hmm. and. And then you also have this sort of culture of everyone must also have an internship. And if it's not paid, that's okay. Right. Because yeah. the best internships in DC seem to be the unpaid ones. Right. Mm-hmm. So that you have the kids then trying to be part of the culture, you know, an unpaid internship, two jobs, right. And trying to hold down a five, you know, five course course load every semester. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, you know, you need handholding in that situation, right? Or you need to say, you know what? Let's reduce it down to four courses a semester. Do we really need all these requirements, right? Um, let's figure out how to make financial aid a little bit, like, more generous. Um, I don't know.
0: I wish, I wish students would, more students at my institution would take six years to finish 8 years to finish work and I, I wish i wish the first two classes were free type of thing so that we could uh those who needed the time could get through i think it would do a lot but suffice to say moocs that's i don't think that's Well, well so uh,
2: yeah that's why i brought up this you know tangential topic it wasn't just to hijack your uh your topic whatever, that's, that's, that's always a thing. bonus feature yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah. you know but i um I brought it up because it's like MOOCs are the, there's no handholding at all. Like there's yeah. no TA, there's no office hours. You can't email the professor. It's like, it's like the platonic ideal of you consume the lectures and you better have learned it. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we've seen so far is that they have extraordinarily high dropout rates. Now, if you talk to the MOOC people, they say that's, A lot of that is the equivalent of people sitting in on one lecture deciding it's not for them and then not signing up for the class in the first place. Okay, fine. But among the people who do it for a week, even only like 10 percent of them finish.
0: Right. But also I think I think back to the most meaningful educational experiences that I've had. And a lot of it came from mentorship and not just the the. Coursework or the substantive lessons that were taught to me, but also just the person, a, a person to emulate, uh, a person to give you those uh, informal asides that convey really important information. Like, think about our own education uh, in graduate well, school. Well, yeah,
2: I was just thinking that's how graduate school works. Graduate yeah. school is like that very intimate mentoring relationship that's extraordinarily labor intensive for faculty
0: there are but and what like what was really the most beneficial lesson that was taught to you was it you know what happened on the third week of your whatever theory class or was it when the faculty told you you know you better have this many publications before you go out on the job market yeah or uh telling you you know Look for postdocs, or you know, whatever those types of things, or just when you watch people and how they proceed, and you emulate them. Like I emulate a lot of what I saw from our professors, and that's not something that would come through in a MOOC. Like I'm learning, I'm sort of pulling traits off of my mentors. You wouldn't have gotten that on a, at a distance. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I think that's. I mean, I think that's right. You know, but at, you know, also to me, you know, I mean, when you're teaching undergrads, in particular, statistics or research methods, right, Um, I kind of feel like they need that immediate ability to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Mm -hmm. right, what, like, what, what does that thing that you just said mean, right, Right? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, especially for students who actually learn better, being able to ask questions, at the moment, as opposed to let me write down all of these bits and, you know, and try and get them answered later. I think there's this cumulative learning effect. And, you know, if you, you know, if you hit a roadblock, right, hmm. I don't understand this concept. I can't ask a question about it. I'm hmm. now not going to understand the whole rest of this lesson,
0: mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So. Interactive. So you know what? Let's let's uh, bookmark the whole question of automation for another time. I'm always happy to save material to reuse. Well, now later. I feel guilty. Oh well, <laughs> thanks a lot, Gabriel. This was my big chance, and you yeah. ruined it for <laughs> me. Because we're not right, doing third or fourth episode. <laughs> yeah, we'll space it out. That's yeah. great. All right. Okay, and and now for our uh, main segment on uh, race and medicine, Leslie.
1: Yeah. So. You know, I've been, thinking about, I've been thinking about race and medicine for a while. You know, I had a postdoc where, you know, I was supposed to immerse myself in the subfield of medical sociology. And truth be told, the reason, the only reason why I applied for that postdoc and why I wanted to actually get into medical sociology was because of the creation of VITAL right? Do you all remember Bidol?
0: No, I, I don't. I need everything explained to me.
1: Yeah. So Bidol, um, has the distinction of being the first pharmaceutical design for a specific racial group. Oh, right. Yeah. So Bidol, basically these two generic drugs, right. That had already been used to treat heart failure in, in patients, right. Um, without kind of this sort of racial component to it comes on the market. And the first, you know, the first clinical trials, they don't see anything, but then they say, let's look at the data. And they go, oh my goodness, it looks like overall, there was no statistical difference in, in the way people in the trial responded to these two drugs, or now this one pill putting Mm -hmm. together the two drugs in terms of, in terms of, being able to live longer with heart failure, but they saw that
0: wait, there's no, there's no difference between the placebo group and the and the treatment group.
1: That's right, okay. except when they decided, for some unknown reason, to start parsing the data by race. Oh, okay. And then they said, "Wow, with our small n, hmm. we actually found that um, our self uh, our self uh, identified African American." Uh, clinical trial um, participants uh, actually seem to do the ones who are getting the treatment Mm. seem to respond significantly better than the ones who are getting the placebo (laughs) right and so so that raised a conundrum for me right Mm. Um, if race is socially constructed as every good sociologist um, is trained to if not believe at least say over and over again Mm -hmm. right how, how was it that people in pharma, and actually, as I learned more and more, doctors themselves, were actually treating race as though it was biological, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that sort of brought me into this. That's why I went into the subfield. And what I started to learn is there is this thing that we can think of as race-based medicine, right? Mm-hmm. We can think of it you know, at the very micro level, right, in terms of, okay, you know, there are ethnopharmacologists who are in a lab somewhere, like, trying to design the next race-based or ethnically targeted drug um, for treatment for diseases that we think work differently in certain groups than in others, to, at the next level, you know, how doctors decide to treat and diagnose patients right and how that differs along racial lines like there is a growing literature that this is happening and has been happening for quite a while and then third you know at the more macro level if we think about our whole kind of healthcare care delivery system
2: mm.
1: and how our healthcare delivery system uh has been like it still is designed to in some ways like ration care along racial lines
2: So I I have kind of two thoughts on this. One is methodologically, this strikes me as there's opportunities for p hacking, where Mm -hmm. because you know a lot of times, especially if you don't have a good ex ante reason for um, suspecting that something would, um, you know, be particularly effective in a in a particular subgroup, but you're just kind of like mining the data. You know, if you have a null finding and then you parse it by 20 different subgroups just Mm -hmm. to, you know, probability one of those is going to look significant and you know, you're going to say, Oh, this is a drug that only works in Asian lesbians, but you know,
0: you, but your n was two. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Well, but first of all, you have a small N of Asian lesbians, um, which means that it's more vulnerable to just sampling error. And second of all, if you tried 50 different groups, one of which was Asian lesbians the sampling error would predict that at least one of those is going to be less than 0.05. Right. Yeah. But,
1: and so, and so that seems to be part of a uh, part of what's going on here. Right. But um,
2: you could, you could test that. Uh, so I, I would say, now I mean, I, I mixed feelings because I think in policy terms, um, drug approval should be easier, not harder, especially when uh-huh. it's for efficacy, not safety, but you would want to see it replicated out of sample because that's kind of the gold standard for like P hacking type issues is you just replicate out of sample. That's how machine learning works, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, if you, if you, let's say that you didn't expect that this heart disease drug would work, especially in African ancestry populations. Um, But you find, you know, just playing with the data endlessly that it does. Well, then you, you replicate that clinical trial or for that matter, you approve it, but then you collect patient histories after the fact, and, um, and then you say, does it actually work better in African ancestry populations that are out of sample, right? Because if it's a second population that's being exposed to it, um, a second, or rather a second sample that's being uh, from the same population that's being exposed to it, that would not be vulnerable to just sampling error that randomly got picked up by P hacking.
0: But, but like, it's okay, so obviously that sounds like a P hacking type of. Finding Right. Mm-hmm. And you can find it when the samples are small enough. But let's just say that group what ended up we p hacked to white women. Do you think that the the alarms would be sounded if it were white women instead of blacks? Somebody would be like, well, be careful. This was a small sample. Like Leslie, did this actually move to market? Did people it raise did a lot move
1: to market, and it was a market failure? Actually,
0: it didn't do well. Well, okay, at least there's some vindication in there. Well, but wait, why I, did I, it fail?
2: Was it because cardiologists just prescribed the same drugs to everybody, or what? Um, so I think there are a
1: couple of reasons why it failed. Number one, it, you know, there were basically two generic drugs that when they decide which doctors had been prescribing. Mm-hmm. Two patients, just these two generic drugs um, for heart failure mm-hmm. um, for years and years, right? Mm-hmm. And then this drug then becomes a brand drug, which is which was incredibly expensive mm-hmm. compared to just these two generics taken mm-hmm. together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, number one, I think the I, I think just rationally speaking. You know why would you? So so like, so race like,
2: aside, even if this was a drug that worked on everybody, it would basically be old wine in a new bottle, and a and a way to sell people air.
1: I think that I think that was part of it. I think also uh, I think also a second thing is you know, vital, you know basically make it made it through clinical trials by trying to brand itself as a drug specifically for Black people. But then, you know, they tried to sort of backpedal and say, actually, it can be for anyone. Yeah. Well, right? you
2: want to have 88%, the other 88% of the market. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And so that became confusing. Right. Um, third, it seemed like their marketing campaign was, was totally off. Right. I mean, there are multiple reasons. Actually, I actually have this edited volume that I, that I just helped to edit. And there's actually a chapter on vital um
2: and why it failed um by by am so i'm curious so you said that they tried to push it as a drug for everybody not just the population that you know fallaciously or not it was shown to be especially effective for was that off label like can the fda approve a drug but only for black people or only for white people or did the fda just approve it as like you know generic statement it
1: was approved for
2: black people like specifically like the fda approval so, like, yes. so if you took that drug, it would be on label. If I took the drug, it would be off label. It would be
1: it would be off label.
0: I'm surprised that scientists. I wonder how many scientists are involved in the process of approval.
1: So here's the thing. Right. I mean, so that's that's this this drug. Right. The mm-hmm. first drug, you know, to be approved for the use of one specific racial or ethnic group. But. You know, for decades, doctors have been prescribing certain medications for certain racial groups for the treatment of of specific, you know, usually chronic diseases more than for other groups. So right? what's the
0: explanation? And, like, uh, can you give us some examples? and? Uh, and yeah, an so my
1: favorite example is hypertension, you know, high blood pressure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, guidelines first said, you know, whatever, everyone should just get diuretics. Right. And then over time, guidelines start to say, you know what, you know, everyone should, you know, these are new drugs that are coming on the market. Looking at population level responses, you know, we're seeing that maybe like black people um, might be less responsive to, let's say, beta blockers. So you might want to monitor that, right? And so then that turns into, oh, black people shouldn't be given beta blockers. And you can look at data and you can see that there are, there are these patterns of very, very significant patterns of doctors prescribing certain drugs, right, for certain racial groups. And when you sort of combine it with um, with with sex as well, I mean, some really, really interesting patterns that sometimes seem like we're following guidelines. And sometimes it's just like, you know, we just want to give the newest, best drugs to, you know, the best people. I
0: have a question. I have a question. Do meta the medical research community? I know nothing about biology or you know medical research. Do they share sociologist's view about this notion that race is wholly a social construction, or do they really think that there are substantial biological differences between the races? Anybody know? I
1: think it depends on who you talk to, right? So I think. You know, so when I started all of this, I actually started before I was like, okay, I'm going to go and, and try and, find, and hunt down data, right? I just started just interviewing doctors and asking them, you know, do you, think, do you do this thing where you treat your patients differently by race or ethnicity? And initially, they all say, no, of course not, right? And then you say, well, what about for hypertension? And They're like, oh, yeah, well, for that. Right. And then you ask them, well, what's the rationale? And it's really interesting. It's either they're like, well, I, that's, I, I just learned that and I can't actually really remember Mm -hmm. the supposed biological pathways through which, um, we find these differences, but it is, there is supposedly this biological difference in terms of the pathogenesis of this disease. Right. But at the same time, those same individuals will also tell you that they think that race is socially constructed.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, that's like a creedal statement that they've, you know, and people can kind yes. of compartmentalize. Uh, so I no. Yeah. Exactly. I'm curious, you you talked about these guidelines that you said the guidelines as written basically said, um, go ahead and give this particular class of drugs to black people, but monitor them because they may be less effective or have more side effects or whatever. So was that an issue with how the guidelines were written? Or is it an issue of how they were implemented? Right? That is to say, let's say for the sake of argument that there's all this clinical data that shows that Black people are 10% less likely to be responsive to this drug or 10% more likely to have side effects. You know, one way or another, it's 10% less good of a drug for that population. Um, So is the issue with the guideline itself that just basically says, watch it because there's a chance here? Or is it more that the doctors took a probabilistic rule that says, uh, you know, just be careful with it. But in practice, they turned that into a deterministic rule of don't use this drug at all.
1: I think it's primarily the latter, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I think, I'm really, really interested in medical, in what I call race-based medical decision-making, mm-hmm. right? And I actually think that there are different processes at at, at play mm-hmm. here. So I think there is this thing called racial profiling, right, mm-hmm. that I think is all about statistical discrimination, mm-hmm. right? And so you're like, okay, they're more likely, but... You know what I mean? If you, you know, if you really, really understood what more likely meant, you'd be like, okay, fine. What you should probably be doing is like, everyone gets the same drug, right? Mm-hmm. And then I monitor, and then I see whether or not this person is part of the ten percent. Well, famously, right?
2: from doctors giving um, people HIV test diagnoses, they're not terribly good at doing bayes theorem on the fly so yeah
0: i i I have to say i have very little faith in uh or i lost a lot of faith in doctors scientific chops i remember when i was in grad school i had a friend who was uh at uh, one of new york's foremost medical schools and uh, she was telling me that all of the students were uh, had to write empirical papers and they were all using the uh, same guy to do their stats for them. <laughs> and when she showed me her output, it was Stata output, and the, the dude was modeling uh, a, a dichotomous dependent variable using OLS. And I was like, well, <laughs> no one's catching any of that over yeah, there. Yeah, but huh? you know,
2: it's not fair to blame the language on that because Stata has Logit, it has Probit, you know. It's not the language. <laughs> I know, I'm I like, think wow. you were saying
0: earlier to get rid of it. Yo, 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 yo. no, 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 no. No, I love Stata, yeah. I love Stata. But, like, uh, I was like, okay, you think somebody would pick that up, the professors or maybe one of the students? Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I think a lot of doctors in practice, they just rely on the headline finding from the drug reps or, you know, whatever they read in their uh, sort of professional journals, but the... Uh, they don't, they don't have the ability or maybe the inclination or probably the time more than anything to get into the weeds of these.
1: I think that's definitely part of it, right? Um, How much of this then goes back to their medical training, right? Number one, I mean, so there's this statistical discrimination going on, right? Um, But I think that there's another process going on, which, and it's a process that I term racial valuation, right? Um, I, and in, in speaking to doctors and also trying to, you know, look at the data about this, I like doctors actually do make decisions about what drugs to prescribe patients based on this is how literate I think this person is, right? Mm-hmm. This is, you know, how much I think this person cares about their health. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is how much I personally care about this person's health. Is that a, how much right? of that is,
2: like, a patient compliance issue? So let's say that there were two drugs, one of which you could administer in the office, and they have to come back six months later, then you administer it again, and one of which they have to wear a little watch with a timer, and they have to take it three times a day, you know. So is that what doctors have in mind? Like, they, they're basically...
1: that's what they, That's what they have in mind. And so then my question is, like, why should your race determine... How compliant you mm-hmm. will be right it like like what does that variable mean mm-hmm. right what meaning do you attach to that variable right i mean so yeah and i think that the way in which we look at the data on on compliance and race i think we're just really 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 bad at you know number one or i wouldn't say we i think um I I think a lot of people in the medical field are really bad at trying to think about, you know, other um, like measures of socioeconomic status that actually might dictate um, compliance issues. So, if I don't have enough money to pay for my for my meds, Mm -hmm. right? Am I going to take them all the time? Mm -hmm. Right? If I if I work two or three jobs, am I going to remember to take my meds all of the Mm -hmm. time? Mm -hmm. Right? Um, so just being a lot more careful about, you know, how they're reading race, right?
2: Um, yeah. So um, so one thing I was thinking is, you know, we have this weird racial conception in our country that, you know, one of the most distinctive ways in which we socially construct race is we have this one drop rule, at least for African ancestry. Yeah. So <laughs> now, but if you're taking the genetics seriously, let's say for the sake of argument that there's some gene distribution, uh, among African ancestry populations that some enzyme gets metabolized differently or yada, yada. Um, but somebody who's half their ancestry is European and half their ancestry is African is socially black, but they're biologically half and half. And so if if you're taking seriously a biological conception, um, you'd expect that either they're going to be somewhere halfway between the two groups in terms of how they respond to the drug. Um, or you'd expect that it might be totally different if it's like, you have to have two recessive genes, like, so birth defects, uh, you know, uh-huh. basically anybody who's mixed race isn't going to have those, um, you know, yeah,
1: so. So, so here's the thing. So That's a really, really interesting Mm -hmm. point, right? Um, And so so the first thing is, so there are people who do this Mm admixture, you know, research, which I think is interesting because it presumes purity, right? Right? So you can be like, okay, fine. I can take you and I can take your parents and I can say that you are exactly 50% of this and 50% Mm -hmm. of that right? Presuming that, that there is actually this level of purity of any kind of, you know, sort of ancestry, right? Um, In any of us. So that's number one. But I think what's even more interesting is so for example, like, let's take the hypertension case. Yeah, that's that's what I'm asking
2: is, is somebody who's half European ancestry and half African ancestry, does a doctor not prescribe them beta blockers?
1: So I'm, I'm okay, going to answer that. So okay. in the hypertension case, so in the UK, right, they basically kind of have the same idea that, you know, beta blockers aren't good, aren't as mm-hmm. good for black mm-hmm. folk as for um, everybody else. Um, but, you know, but then there's, they have this, this um, when they think about um, mixed race mm-hmm. people, like specifically talking about people who are who are, who have african ancestry and european ancestry they're like oh yeah they respond just as well as everybody uh-huh. else right which i think is very interesting because you know you talking about the united states and the sort of hypo descent rule like right, there're no such distinctions yeah. right like as long as you self identify as black then you know then that's it or in some cases as long as the doctor looks at you and says you're black You know, has anybody
2: replicated this sort of thing in, um, you know, Latin American countries where they have, you know, concepts like Pardo and that sort of thing instead of a one drop rule? That's interesting.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think I I think that, um, you know, in thinking about Latin American studies like this, I think the the one country I've seen this in is Mm -hmm. Cuba. Um, But I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it in Brazil. Oh, yeah. Also, I think in Puerto Rico as well. And I I think it would be a worthwhile project, you know, for someone to actually, you know, take one of these, one of these ailments, right, that we know, at least here in the US, you know, we have these very, like, I think, very rigid ideas about, um, about race and, and treatment for, for these, and then look around the world and just kind of map. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, how are people around the world thinking about how we should treat this Mm -hmm. disease? Well,
0: we're 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 running a little bit low on time. Leslie, before we go, can you just uh, tell us the name of the book and uh, give us some details?
1: Oh, yeah. The book, it's called Subprime Health, Debt and Race in U.S. Medicine. You know, I'm someone who's really interested in in race across different institutions. And writing this book, I thought, was a really good opportunity to like think through, you know, what happened with the subprime uh, mortgage crisis, right? And and I think the role that, um, I mean, the role that race played um, in not just that, but also in helping to actually destroy our entire economy. And then thinking about how we see the same kind of the same kind of like mechanisms at play in the delivery of healthcare in the United States, and so that's what the book's about.
0: Very nice, very nice. All right, and now a word from Editor Bain.
2: It doesn't matter who we are. What matters is our comments for improving your paper.
0: Mm. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. You can comment on our show page, theannexpodcast.com. Don't forget the The. Our show's Twitter handle is at Soch Annex. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.